Hi, I'm Kathy Walker, teacher, feminist and parent, and this is Raise Her Up, a podcast from the GDST, the UK's leading family of girls' schools. With 19,000 students across 25 schools and the largest women's alumni network of its kind, we are experts in girls' education and everything that goes with it. Even as a teacher with over 20 years experience of working with young people and as a mum of two girls, I am still learning every day. I think we all are. In each episode, we'll welcome an expert guest who will address a different topic that, as modern parents, we are bound to encounter at some point. In this episode, Dr. Deborah Woodman shares her expertise on the matter of getting back to a new normal and learning to live with COVID-19. In the case of young people who are more anxious than their parents, parents need to be able to lend their confidence because parents are a child's safety net for when things go wrong. As a consultant clinical psychologist and clinical lead for psychology at Evelina London Guys and St Thomas NHS Foundation Trust, Dr Woodman shares her psychological insights into the brave new world we're living in and what the future may hold for us and our children. This is Raise Her Up from the GDST and this is Dr Deborah Woodman. Dr. Woodman, we're so delighted to have you back after you kicked off the inaugural GDST Talk event last year. Thank you for coming to share your insights with us at this unique time. So let's start by asking, has the world changed forever? Does that mean that we have also changed? I think that's a really interesting question. And I think broadly, yes, the world has changed, but the world is constantly changing and people are constantly changing and adapting in order to deal with the changes that happen in the world. I think the the more important thing really is to look at what has happened over the last 18 months now um, and think about the impact of that and how we can support children and young people and families to change in the most adaptive ways possible. And yes, part of that is learning to live with COVID because as all the scientists are saying these days, it's going to be with us for quite a long time um, and we need to adapt and learn to live with that as part of our daily lives now. Well, Professor Chris Whitty, the Chief Medical Officer, has said that, you know, COVID illness and deaths will be with us for the rest of our lives. So, you know, do you, do you feel that obviously we need to learn to adapt, but, you know, will our minds ever get back to normal again? Do you feel that we will be living with some trauma for some time to come? Um, again, I think this is a really important thing to think about. And first of all, I would make a difference between trauma and being traumatised. Uh, and I think that that that's really important um, in, in terms of how we think about this. Uh, so when we think about a trauma, uh, a trauma is an acutely stressful event that carries with it a high level of threat. And for many people, living through the last 18 months has been a trauma. And we have a particular set of emotional, physical and thinking reactions when we go through a traumatic event. Being traumatised is when we become stuck in the acute stage of those reactions and find it very, very difficult to move on. So when we've been through a traumatic event of any description, there's always a period of time where we need to readjust 
to our normal lives. Um, and this is no different um, from that in many ways. Um, and it's something that we go through multiple times throughout our lives to varying degrees. Traumatic events disrupt the sense of safety and security that we need in order to get along and carry out our, our daily lives as we would normally. And then we've got that period of readjustment where we, bit by bit, it doesn't happen all at once, integrate that experience to regain that sense of safety and security. The difficulty is with COVID is that period of readjustment is normally when the threat is over. And with COVID, that threat has continued for an exceptionally long time. So the challenge here is that we haven't had a period of time when the threat has completely gone. And so some people have had more difficulties in readjustment than others. So with that in mind, what is the effect on young minds and indeed on older minds of that constant uncertainty? You know, the, you know will I be able to visit my family and friends? Will my night out or my play date, you know, indeed be cancelled because my app's going to ping? What, what's the effect of that? Well, the good news is that there have been some relatively large scale studies looking at uh, both parent reports and young people's uh, self reports on the psychological aspects of particularly lockdowns. Um, and th the good news in that is that as restrictions ease, the vast majority of both young people and parents are reporting getting back normal, more or less, uh, in terms of anxiety, mood, behaviour, etc. On the other hand, we do know that uh, referrals for young people with significant mental health difficulties have increased. So we can deduce from, from both of those streams of, of research that there are vulnerable groups that are perhaps much more likely to have longer term adverse effects from their experiences of maybe dealing with the anxieties around COVID, but also dealing with the consequences of lockdown. Let me ask you, let me, let's go back to that word normal. You know, you are a consultant psychologist in a children's hospital. So you are on the front line of young people's mental health. Do we want to go back to normal? What was normal like from your perspective in your job before the pandemic? And what is it now? You know, are there any advantages in your opinion of the more perhaps scaled back way that we've lived for the past 18 months? I think for some people, there definitely has been. Um, but for other young people, it has been more difficult. The wonderful things that we have learned over the last 18 months is how flexible and adaptable organizations can be. So for example, um, you my, my own organization moving very quickly uh, to being able to offer virtual appointments. Um, technology doesn't always work, but for some people that is so much preferable to coming up for hospital appointments, especially if they have to travel a long distance. And that's really freed some people up. Um, and and that, I think that's been really important. Having been a governor in hospital school for, for many years, I'm also really impressed at how young people have been able to access education uh, in some form, at least over the last 
18 months and especially when um, the lockdowns um, have been happening and schools have had to be closed. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I really hope that for young people who have difficulties um, in terms of accessing education in a mainstream way, we'll be able to keep some of that flexibility in the future um, because I think those young people have really benefited. I think the difficulties have been more around the missing out of the normal developmental milestones that we would expect young people to be achieving. Because it's it's not like adults. So if you if you think so for you somebody who's just turning 15, the last time they would have had a quote normal life was when they were 13. And what you would expect in terms of emotional independence of a 15-year-old is very different uh, to what you would expect of a 13-year-old. Similarly, if you think about the differences, say, between a five and a seven-year-old uh, and what you, what you would expect from them. So it, it's not as straightforward as just going back into your normal life and picking up where you left, where you left off. Of course. And those two years, uh, the age groups that you've mentioned there are really quite significant. Two years in the, in, in the life of a child are much longer than two years in the life of an adult. Can I, can, may I ask you, um, a question? Is there anything comparable to the pandemic experience that might have had a similar effect on young people in terms of that kind of uncertainty, discomfort to give some context or, you know, to, to deploy the most overused word of 2020? You know, is this uniquely unprecedented? Uh, I've been really thinking quite hard about that. And as somebody who, who works with young people um, who, who have chronic illnesses, so they are used to having similar events in their lives where they may be out of education for quite a long time. They may have very restricted social lives, but that's a very personal family type experience. In addition to those sorts of experiences, which have now become mainstream, we're also dealing with an, you, a national sense of loss um, because everybody has been going through this. Everybody has missed out on milestones, events, and a much higher rate of people within our society have been dealing with loss on a day-to-day -day basis because we have had far more death than, than we would normally deal with. Uh, and in addition to that, we haven't had any of the normal ritual that we would normally have to help us process those losses in the way we would have normally. And thinking about what that means in, in terms of additional loss for young people. The other thing that I think is different is the sheer length of time that this has taken. Because even if you think about, uh, you know, floods, natural disasters, those are quite short. Um, and once they're over, they're over. And people can get on with the business of finding their feet again, living their lives again. The uncertainty here is we don't know what's going to happen next winter. Okay, so let me let, let's stick with that idea and, and and also go back to something you mentioned before, which was schools um, and the flexibility that educational institutions will, I am sure, be taking forward to enrich the educational experience of their students. 
Given that we are going to be living with this uncertainty for some time to come, do you think we should be making allowances for, say, year 11 and year 13 students who will supposedly sit their exams as normal in 2022? You know, the schools may not be shut next academic year, but you are saying that there will still be an impact. You know, should we be taking that into account and not expecting the norm when it comes to exams of these students? I think we should be taking it into account, definitely. Um, And I'm very concerned about uh, the year 13 students who will be in a very unusual situation of sitting public examinations for the first time in their lives. So most year 13 students will have had sort of a trial run, if you like, for their GCSEs, uh, whereas these students won't have had that. The other thing that that we we really need to consider um, in terms of education is that not everybody will have experienced the changes in education in the same way. Um, And this may be down to access to technology. Um, And so having reduced access, meaning that you haven't been able to participate in the same way uh, with education. It may also be that the style of education has suited some young people better than others. Um, I have spoken to to some young people who feel that they've really benefited from having a much more virtual style of education uh, because they have recordings that they can go back to, that they can listen to at their own pace. And they find that very beneficial for them in their personal circumstances, but then have struggled much more when face-to-face learning has resumed. And then speaking to other young people who really have a much different style of learning and are much more learning about doing and interacting, and that has been missed for them. In each episode of Raise Her Up, we ask a representative from across the GDST to share their thoughts Today, we're asking Susie Longstaff, who is head of Putney High School, to share her thoughts about life at Putney High School post-COVID. I'm Susie Longstaff, headmistress of a spirited and vibrant Putney High School. Most students have found that while studying in their bedroom may have sounded like a luxury pre-COVID, actually they prefer being in school and being with their friends. The well-being of our students will remain firmly at the core of everything we do, as it always does. COVID has shone a spotlight on the importance of strong and proactive partial systems and our wellbeing programmes have proven to be particularly effective in supporting our students. The power of friendships and social interactions also play their part in this and I cannot wait to burst our bubbles and reintroduce students in other year groups to each other. The power of building new friendships both in and out of the classroom should not be underestimated. During COVID, we all rallied around our local communities by showing Showing our students that it starts with them, we have also increased their well-being levels and sense of self-worth. It's definitely another COVID keep for us. This September, we're going to pack away the lateral flow testing stations and have a real live assembly. And there we will explain any differences for the year ahead. I think we will all be grateful that there is hopefully light at the end of the COVID tunnel. Okay, so Deborah, we've heard from Susie there from Putney. Schools obviously play an extremely important role in supporting young people with their mental health, allowing young people to have structure and routine, contact with trusted adults and peers, and providing that support and guidance to young people in terms of both their academic progress and emotional well-being. So what can parents be doing to complement the care that students are getting in school? 
I think one of the most important things parents can do is to try to make sure that the messages that they're giving to young people are consistent with the messages that they're getting from school because young people and children do really need that sort of consistency. And that might be difficult sometimes if there are very differing opinions. And so communication with schools is highly important. I think parents as well are really the experts on their own children. They know them very well. And they are also the the best advocates for their children. And sometimes schools do need to be helped to understand the particular needs of young people, especially if they aren't within the usual needs that young people might have. The other thing that parents can do is to think about life outside of school. Because while young people do spend possibly the majority of their waking days within an educational environment, they do need to be well-rounded. And thinking about the opportunities that young people might have missed over the last 18 months, the out-of-school extracurricular opportunities, and making sure that there is time built in for those opportunities. Because we know that when children and young people are having those sorts of experiences in a balanced way, they perform better in school, their mental health is better, um, and they're generally happier and less stressed. Okay. What do we do? What about those parents who are still quite cautious about the the risk of COVID, uh, but who have children who are desperate to be let out and cut loose again? You know, young people meeting up and bringing the virus back to their parents, you know, when they've been at festivals, etc. How can those families bridge that gap from a relationship perspective, do you think? I think this is really challenging. uh, And it's something that I've been thinking about a lot recently. Um, But when you dig into that a bit more. Uh, you especially when you think about the teenage years. The teenage years are a time where normal parenting is a lot about negotiation and finding a middle ground that both a young person can accept and a parent is happy with. So you know it's that negotiation balanced with the cutting loose. In the same way, parents need to really examine why they are setting down the boundaries that they are. And they need to ask themselves, are these reasonable? Are they about a child's safety, someone else's safety, or are they purely driven by anxiety or something else? There are always different factors weighing in there. And like all of those decisions, there will be negotiations involved and there'll be disagreements. Um, And I think that's a really good place to be starting off from. And it's normal for parents to have different anxieties than their children because it is parents' job to keep your child safe, whereas it's a child's job to achieve emotional independence. And those conflict quite a lot. Um, And it's about getting that middle ground. So it might be um, you taking things step by step. So deciding where you're happy at the moment and stretching it a little bit, seeing what that feels like, stretching it a bit more. And that might take time. Um, There might be some quite clear feedback that you need from young people in order to feel that you can stretch those boundaries a little bit more. But there will also be a pushback from young people and there will be some rule breaking. Uh, 
because that is part of, of what that process normally likes. So there isn't any reason to believe that this process will look different to other adolescent processes. That's very reassuring, I think, that some things, some relationship dynamics will remain unchanged despite what we've been through. And I, th- I think the converse also applies. There's also going to be some children and young people who are more anxious than their parents about getting out there and getting back to the normal routine. And on both accounts, what I would really encourage people to do is to not think about it as an all or nothing. You think about it in steps and stages. And it's really, really important that parents are confident in their decisions. In the case of young people who are more anxious than their parents, parents need to be able to lend their confidence to young people to enable and support them to get out there. And in the other example where maybe young people superficially seem more confident than their parents, they still need their parents to be confident about that decision because parents are a child's safety net for when things go wrong. And so they need to know that they can come back to you. Yeah. I note your use of the the verb lend there, need to lend their confidence. Is it is it a little bit like like parents having to fake it till they make it as well? Kind of showing that they are similar not or rather not showing that they are similarly anxious, but projecting greater confidence than they may feel? Definitely. I I mean I wonder to myself quite a lot of the time, speaking as a parent rather than a psychologist, what percentage of parenting is made up of faking it till you make it? Oh, 90% in my case. Learning all the time. Yes. So let me ask you, in your view, what should we be taking forward from this experience and and what could we perhaps leave behind? That's a big question. (laughs) It's an enormous question. So, um, I think, you know, that, that flexibility that we have found in ourselves and organizations have found in themselves, because we all know that change making in organizations is very difficult, but I've been surprised and impressed by how people have managed this. I think you know, the sense of resilience that a lot of young people have found in themselves should definitely be fostered and taken forward. I think for a lot of people, what they've really valued is the sense of community, you know, that when it comes down to it, that they have been able to both reach out to their communities um, for help, but also to reach out to other people to help them. And uh, I mean, just you recently, um, you, Marcus Rashford, has been in the media again. And that is something that has been born out of COVID um, and out of people's responses to COVID. But yet that has carried on because it has identified a need within our society. And that is happening all over the place in smaller community projects. Um, and I think that that awareness that we do need to do more to help people within our community. I think it would be great if that can be carried forward. I think what other people have valued is time to step back and to actually consider what do we value in life? What have we really missed 
over the last 18 months? And what could we sort of do without? Do we really need to be doing after-school activities every single day of the week? Or actually, do we need some time just to chill out, be with our families? Do we need to prioritise getting into the outdoors more? Which is something that a lot of people have said that this is actually their first real experience of noticing what's in the outdoors in their local communities. I think that sense of time has been very, very helpful to our well-being. And I've, I've seen um, a lovely example in uh, Blackheath High where they have really been thinking about the different styles of interaction of their secondary school pupils and have developed some pods for pupils to have quiet time. And I think that's a wonderful example um, of how something that perhaps COVID has really brought to the fore has been continued in a very appropriate, adaptable way. Deborah, thank you so very much for returning to the GDST to share your expertise. It's been a pleasure. Well, I'm sure that as we start the new school year, I know that your advice about learning to live with COVID uh, will be invaluable to so many of us living and working with young people in the weeks and months ahead. So thank you again. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to this episode of Raise Her Up from the GDST. To hear all the experts we have on this series and to make sure you don't miss one, please subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, if you could leave a review and a five-star rating, it'll help other parents and carers to find the podcast so they can listen and learn too. I'm Cathy Walker. Join me on the next episode of Raise Her Up from the GDST, when I'll be with gender and parenting culture expert, Dr. Charlotte Faircloth. What does it mean for children to sort of see equality in practice? And for me, I think that kind of very 50-50 idea as to who does what is arguably a little bit too simplistic for taking into account how family life actually (laughs) kind of works in practice. So I, I don't think it's about being too dictatorial about what equality should look like. I think it's more about this issue of sort of recognition and how people understand it for themselves. I'll see you then.